Hi, my name is Graham Barrett. Welcome to the first episode of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, the podcast that will focus on some of the less celebrated stars of the centuries-old contest between England and Australia. We won't focus on Bradman, Border and Benno, or Botham, Barrington and Boycott, although these names will inevitably pop up. Instead, we'll concentrate on members of the supporting cast. Those players that played but one solitary test in the Ashes. That's the criteria. They may have played in other test matches for their country, but in Ashes cricket, one test and one test only. How many cricketers are we talking about? 134 in total, if we take the start of the Ashes to be everything after the famous Sporting Times obituary of English cricket following Australia's win at the Oval in 1882. The first Ashes series, thus being the three test series in Australia of 1882 to 83. Some enjoyed their five days in the sun. English left armour Fred Martin took 12 for 102 at the Oval in the second test of the 1890 series. Those bowling figures remain the best for an England player on debut. Unfortunately, the third and final test in Manchester was abandoned without a ball being bowled. And that was it in the ashes for poor old Fred. Steve Watkin took six wickets at the Oval in 1993. That included the Aussie top three in the second innings, Slater, Taylor and Boone, as he set up a famous and handsome England win. But that was to be his third and final test match for England, and he missed out on selection for the tour down under the following year. Others fared less well. Australian quick bowler Pat Crawford broke down in his fifth over at Lord's in 1956 and didn't bowl another ball in the match. He didn't trouble the scorers with a bat either, but was at least unbeaten on naught in his first innings. Aussie opener Jack Moroney bagged a pair in 1950 on a sticky Brisbane wicket. Nevertheless, Australia won by 70 runs after declaring its second innings on 32. Of these 134 One Ashes Test Wonders, 89 of them have sadly passed away. That includes Eric Hollies, who, in his only Ashes Test, bowled Bradman for that famous duck to deny him his perfect average. He may have been the supporting actor, but he had the better part that day. We'll shine a light on as many of these stories as we can. But our main focus will be the 45 who are still with us. 24 from England and 21 from Australia. An interview and feature as many of them as possible. On the English side, that means from Ken Taylor, who played his sole Ashes test in 1964, to Sam Curran in 2019, taking in the likes of Fred Rumsey, Jonathan Agnew and Chris Silverwood along the way. For Australia, the span is Keith Slater in 1959 to Ed Cowan in 2013 via Brian Tabor, David Gilbert, Doug Bollinger and more. For 17 of these 45 players, this Ashes test was to be their only test match, but others had a longer run. Pat Pocock only played once in the Ashes, but featured in 25 tests in total for England. Brian Tabor played 16 for Australia. Sam Curran is on 19 and counting. Why interview them? To hear their fascinating stories and insights? Maybe to gain a different perspective on events and people we think we know well? Perhaps to see how things could have turned out differently? Are they happy to have been briefly involved? 
or still wondering about what could have been. What did they make of the leading lights they played with and against? And above all, what did it mean to them to play in the Ashes? Where shall we start? It has to be with the only member of our exclusive club of 45 who played his one Ashes test in the 1950s. Keith Slater in 1959. His story is coming up. It's a tale of versatility, reinvention and controversy. It takes in Midland, Western Australia, Sydney and Hayward, Lancashire. And stars Ray Linwall, Richie Benno, Peter May, Ted Dexter, Gary Sobers and Donald Bradman. Here's a brief taster of our interview. The, the selection for Australia has to be a highlight because when you're playing in, the, in an Ashes series, it's uh, something a bit special. It certainly is a bit special and Keith has a fascinating story to tell. But before we hear from Keith, let's wind the Ashes clock back to August the 15th, 1948 at the Oval. Let's get straight to the heart of Ashes folklore. It was, of course, Donald Bradman's last test innings that left him 0 0.06 from statistical perfection. Does it remain the most famous and iconic Ashes moment? Surely only Shane Warne and his ball of the century rivals it. One moment of departure, one of arrival, one of what had been, one of what was to come. Anyway, we digress. On the England team that day were actually two players who were playing their first and last Ashes test. The aforementioned Eric Collies and Alan Watkins of Glamorgan was making his test debut. He had a ringside seat that day. Here's cricket historian Stephen Chalk with more. He was fielding close in, closest to the bat, when Don Bradman came out to bat in that match. This is what he said to me. He was a majestic figure, and we clapped him all the way to the wicket. Eric Hollies was bowling from the Vauxhall end, and Norman Yardley said to me, you're a close to the wicket fielder, Alan. Up you go. See the whites of his eyes. He played the first ball quietly to me, and I picked it up. The second came down, a googly, and he left a gap. I had a beautiful view of the ball hitting the wicket. He looked back, and off he went. I was the last man to field a ball off Bradman in a test. <laughs> so there you go. Alan Watkins had his claim to fame. And did Bradman play that final ball through a mist of tears, as legend would have it? What he did say, which is important to record for history, because yeah. it's often speculated, is that Bradman was dry-eyed. There was no tear in his eye. So Bradman was dry-eyed, but how did Alan Watkins end up playing in that test in the first place? And Alan Watkins was a brilliant close fielder and a decent all-rounder. And now England were losing in 48 to Bradman's Australians, and he was called up for the last test. He'd never played first-class cricket for any team other than Glamorgan before. And at Glamorgan, they were a rowdy lot, laughing, singing, shouting at each other, arguing. Wilf Wooler was a loud man with strong opinions. Everybody argued with him all the time. It was a, a robustious dressing room. And he got to the Oval for this match playing for England and he couldn't get over how silent the whole place was. You know, nobody was talking and there was no atmosphere in the dressing room. And he, he felt very ill at ease in the whole thing. 1948 was also the year Glamorgan won the county championship for the first time, somewhat out of the blue. What's more, Alan Watkins was the first Glamorgan player to play in an Ashes test. So aside from his I was there moment with Bradman, how did the all-rounder from Glamorgan fare in that test? He didn't have a good game. He got hit on the shoulder by Linwall, I think, while he was uh, 
batting and was unable to bowl much and was out of the game injured for a little while afterwards. In fact, he wasn't able to play the game when Glamorgan won the championship a week or two later. He was still having treatment for his shoulder in London. And he told me that he, he was going out every half hour to buy the latest edition of the evening newspaper to catch the stop press score to see how they were getting on. <laughs> no quick info or anything in those no. days. Not a debut he would particularly want to remember. Not in the first innings as England were routed for 52. Ray Lindwall, the tormentor-in-chief on day one with six for 20. Watkins bowled four wicketless overs in the Australia reply as they amassed 389. And then he was out for two second time around as Australia completed the innings win. But although this was to be his last Ashes contribution, he wasn't jettisoned altogether. Alan Watkins had a very good tour of South Africa that winter, and he also played in India, first England tour of India after independence. So he did have a, and he scored a test match century, and he did have a reasonable test career at the end of it all. Yes, Alan Watkins played in 15 tests in total, making two test centuries, and his final test was against India in 1952. And what of Eric Hollies? How did he manage to snare Bradman's second ball? Stephen can explain. He thought he'd spotted in the Warwickshire match that Bradman hadn't picked his googly. Mm. And he had said to the Warwickshire secretary before leaving for the Oval, I'm going to bowl him a googly second ball. I'm not sure he's going to read it. So it was a plan that had been (laughs) cooked up before the event. So there you have it. I love it when a plan comes together. Holly's ended up with five for 131 in that Australia innings. He's one of six players to take five wickets in an innings in their only Ashes test. The others are Fred Martin, who bagged six in each innings in 1890, Arnold Warren in 1905, Douglas Carr in 1909, Pat Pocock in 1968, and Mick Malone in 1977. These exploits weren't enough to secure them another Ashes appearance. Eric Hollies was picked for the Ashes tour of 1950-51, to but he was kept out of the side by Doug Wright. Holly's played 13 tests in total for England. A big thank you to Stephen Chalk, the cricket writer and historian, for sharing those memories. He'll be joining us again on next week's show, so we'll look forward to that. But without further ado, I think it's time for today's main guest. Most of us would be happy to excel in one sport. Keith Slater managed it in two. Australian rules football for Swan District, Subiaco and Western Australia and cricket for Midland Guildford, Western Australia and the national side. As befitted such a talented all-round sportsman, Keith bowled pace and off-spin to a high standard, often in the same match. In 74 first-class matches, he took 149 wickets and made 2,198 runs with a top score of 154. He played his one Ashes test in 1959 at the SCG. Keith, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Yeah, nice to have you on board. The obvious first question is how did you manage to play Aussie rules and cricket to such a high standard? Initially with great difficulty. A coach named Hayden Button wasn't that keen on me playing cricket because I said to him, you won't see me at the footy club until the cricket season's finished. Quite often I won't start until about the third game of the season. I stuck by that. The footy club didn't like it well, I could lump it. So the cricket came first then? Cricket was my first love for some reason. We went to a Swan Boys Orphanage, it was orphans, and because when you were bowling off spinners at primary school, um, they were very keen to hit you for six, and you got a few wickets. 
How did your lifelong association with Midland Guildford come about? Midland Guildford were being threatened with loss of uh, A-grade status because it was just after the war and uh, the, all the players had come home from the war and and they'd been first-grade players before they went to the war, but when they got home they were in the 30s and uh, they combed the area and picked out some young guys who they thought had a chance. Uh, I was um, I was about six foot three when I was 15. I think my size helped me. I was playing first-grade cricket for Midland Guildford when I was 15. In fact, I remember my first game, Graham. I, I was picked in the first grade against a, a team called Nedland. And I was LBW bowled Matt Padbury for 23 and had my name in the paper and uh, I thought I owned Midland. Yeah, I bet you thought you'd made it then. As I said in the intro, you could turn your hand to pace and spin bowling, but it was a spin bowling that came first, wasn't it? What, what drew you to spin bowling? I think it intrigued me a bit. I had a lot to do with Bruce Yardley. You might remember Bruce Yardley, but um, I had a lot to do with him, and he was a medium pacer who bowled an off-spinner in the middle of the over, and um, he was so good we got him bowling off-spinners all the time. So. so where did the pace bowling come from? In those days, I was more off-spinner come batsman, but I uh, used to love watching Ray Lindwell bowl. When the official training session was all over, us young guys would all stay back. I would uh, commentate the cricket whilst running off 19 yards. And I was Ray Lindwell doing this and Ray Lindwell doing that. And Ray Lindwell's bowling action was uh, impeccable and beautiful. Our opening bowler was a chap named Norm Beatty, a, a quick left-hander. And he had a car accident on the way to the cricket, which meant he couldn't open the bowling. So our captain at the time, Better name Pat McCarthy from Ceylon, come Sri Lanka. My nickname was Spud, so they said, Spud, you better bowl some Lindwells. So I got the big new cherry and, and ran off 19 yards. I had the, enough pace to bowl at that level. I, was, uh, I just stayed, stayed playing. OK, let's turn our attention to the 58-59 season, if you don't mind. This was Ashes year, of course. You played for Western Australia against the MCC in October, didn't you? What do you remember of that game and how did it go for you? In the state game, I think our captain was Ken Muleman. Bowled off spinners, I got Peter May out in the first innings. There was a nice full toss down the leg side, which he hit straight to square leg. Didn't bowl all that well in that game, to be quite honest. The second innings, the wacko ground in Perth was notorious for its strong breeze, which they called the Fremantle Doctor. And the Fremantle Doctor was was blowing in the third day of this match and it was blowing very strongly. And our opening bowlers were Ron Gaunt, who was a tearaway quick, and Des Hoare, another tearaway quick. And our captain, Ken Muleman, didn't want to bowl one of his quick bowlers into the breeze. So he said to me he, he needed some big, strong bastard who could bowl up into the breeze at reasonable pace. Could I do a job for him? Graham, I, I, when I bowled uh, fast-medium, Rhythm was the key. Pushing up into this breeze for some reason balanced me up and I got into a very good rhythm, very good rhythm in, indeed. I finished up stumps on that first night. I had uh, four for eight. Peter Richardson and Milton, Peter May and Gravy. I dismissed Arthur Milton and Peter May first ball. And then the uh, next batsman was Colin Cowdery. And Cowdery, as you know, most likely Graham was at Walker. And I was bowling these fast mediums up into the breeze. And I think I was a bit quicker than he, he expected. And I hit him in the pad. And I joke not, it was hitting middle stuff halfway up. Because that was a hat trick. 
Cowdery looked up, nodded to me, and started to walk out. The umpire said, not out. Couldn't believe it. But it would have been a nice hat-trick, Ken. Why he gave it not out, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, it was just it was one of those uh, situations where it was uh, without question. He played back and across, and my I'd bowled an almost Yorker length, and the ball had ducked in from outside the off stump. And, um, and I think that drew a bit of tension to me. Yeah, it certainly did, as you were, you were then called up for the second test. How did you find out you'd been selected for the Ashes? This afternoon, I'd, I'd been out around the schools trying to rouse up a bit of business for my new firm, Sports Specialist. And when I came back into the centre of Perth, in the Murray Street in the centre of Perth, I couldn't get near my place because there was a, a, an over, outside broadcast ban and journos from left, right and centre, and um, I, I couldn't get in. And they were all there to congratulate you on your call-up to the Ashes. That must have been fantastic. Were you expecting this at all? I had no expectation, Graham. I obviously said, oh, Wadman and Co saw something there they liked, and I was in the, in the, in the team. And from that little exercise, I was in the second, third and fourth tests. I was 12th man in Melbourne, I played in Sydney, I was 12th man in Adelaide. And you know who took my place in the side for Adelaide? Ray Lindwell. <laughs> <laughs> That's something very cruel about that, isn't there? What a wonderful bloke, Graham. Absolutely marvellous bloke. Now, Australia had won the first test by eight wickets in a low-scoring match. Richie Benno took seven wickets in that match. The second test was in Melbourne, and as you say, you're in the 12th. When did you find out if you were actually playing in that match? I went to Melbourne, joined the 12 for the second test, and you go out and on the, on the ground and you warm up. After you warmed up, about an hour before the start of play, the selectors arrive. In my case, Sir Donald Bradman and co. go to one player, then they go to another player, and then they come down and say, you'll be 12th man today, Keith. That took a bit of pressure off. Now, in contrast, in uh, in Sydney, when I played, the selectors did the same thing, and they went to two or three players, and they never came near me. That meant that I was playing. So in that situation, silence was the best form of communication. How did it feel to be making your Ashes debut? Well, the nerves started to build up then. There was only one person at the ground more nervous than me, and he happened to be a chap named Ted Dexter. He was a nervous player, was he? Well, he was nervous this day because I bowled an off spinner pitching two or three inches outside the off stump, turning back to hit middle, and he shoulder arms. <laughs> it sounds like you're enjoying the moment. Me bowling to Ted Dexter with four short legs on a plum Sydney wicket. I mean, uh, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> a spinner's paradise. You had a pretty good morning's work, didn't you? I went into lunch, my figures were two for four. The batsman I'd got out was Peter May and, and Ted Dexter. That's not a bad first couple of wickets, is it? I bet you were very happy with that. Yeah, especially the quality of the players. When you go in in, in Sydney, when you go off the ground, you walk through the members. And, and when I went in at lunchtime and sitting on two for four, all these Sydney members wanted to see this new guy. A few hundred of them stayed and were trying to get a look at me, see what he looked like. He, he was some sort of a freak. <laughs> Graham, uh, after lunch, in the first over after lunch, Colin McDonald 
dropped an absolute set. Roy Sweatman, the England keeper, was in straight after lunch. And uh, he, he hit an easy catch to Colin McDonnell at leg slip. who dropped it, which would have been three for four. Yes, and who knows what would have happened if he had held on to that catch. He'd had an excellent morning with the ball. It could have been an even better afternoon. You could have run through the entire England team. Similar to the state game you played against the MCC in October. And were you just bowling the off-spinners in this match? Uh, in the test, I uh, bowled off-spin in the first innings. And I think Ian Mackiff got injured in the second innings and I uh, was called on to share the new ball. Now, Richie Benner was your captain. What did you make of his captaincy? Was he a good leader? Oh, it was magnificent. I mean, he, um, he enthused everybody with confidence. There's no doubt about that. I went, I went, when I went into bat, I... Uh, we were 300 odd, and um, he just said to me, uh, "Tell Grizz to get on with it." Uh, Wally Grout, our wicketkeeper, his nickname was Grizzly. Tell Grizz to get on with it. So uh, I'm walking out on the city and telling Wally Grout to get on with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in your first Test match, yeah. England were very confident uh, going to Australia for that series, weren't they? They thought people thought it was, you know, one of the strongest England sides ever to leave for Australia, and yet you trounced them 4-0. Was a lot of that down to Richie Benno and his aggressive captaincy? Yes, he had this ability to sort of um, look down on people. England had a very good side, you know. They had uh, Typhoon Tyson, Brian Statham, Fred Truman, Locke and Laker. They had a very good batting line-up too. Like Trevor Bailey was, was opening... Peter May and Colin Cowdery, Ted Dexter, I mean, they are very good players. And yet you beat them very convincingly over the series. What do you put that down to? Mainly attitude. Australia were very strong and uh, Richie Benno stood tall and he commanded respect no matter where he went. And, and he wasn't very bold himself either. The series wasn't without controversy, was it? Can we talk about the umpiring for a moment? You alluded to it earlier when you said Cowdery would have walked in the warm-up game only to be given not out. England questioned the standard of umpiring throughout the series. Was that fair or sour grapes on their part? I think they had a few roughies. I, um, the umpiring, I would say, was generally disappointing, but I don't think there was any malice of just bad decisions as, as happened in cricket. After you played the test match in Sydney, especially as you had performed so well, did you expect to play for Australia again? Very much so. Why do you think it didn't happen? The other problem that came to light there was bowling actions and Australia had people like uh, Gordon Rourke and Ian Mackiff and Jim Burke and in the eyes of uh, most opposition doubtful actions. Uh, I just thought it was normal. It almost took over the series. Can you give any explanation as to how this happened? Did your action change over time? It's the one setback I suppose I had with the football and cricket combination is um, prior to uh, one of the seasons, uh, the last football game of the season, I got a, a kick in the heel, a nasty kick in the heel on the foot you put down when you're bowling. In those days, you didn't not play because you had a bit of a sore heel. You just found the way to get around it. I started to break my front knee to take the pressure off my jarred heel. 
messed my action up a bit. I couldn't put the heel on the ground, so I started to put the pad of my foot on the ground and uh, breaking the front knee. So instead of bowling from the high trajectory, I was bowling off this low trajectory, a very bent front foot, and that took the pressure off and allowed me to continue to bowl, but it, it didn't help my action, even though uh, I was thought I was just bowling like everybody else. Even though I wasn't getting called, most were convinced that uh, a few of us had doubtful action. As you say, this threatened to take over the entire series, and the debate continued long after that series was over. The next Ashes was in England in 61, and you expected to be selected for that tour, didn't you? Yeah, I, uh, I had a good season. 61, I had a good season. I think I took 28 wickets for the season. But more so, uh, all the journos, uh, what they do in Australia, of course, is they pick the squad they think will go to England for the Ashes series. And it's a, it's a pretty big deal. By all the Eastern States journos, all had me in the squad. And in fact, I was a certainty to, to go on the tour. And when the tour was announced, I wasn't in. It was a hell of a blow to me because I particularly wanted to be in. I was really looking forward to playing. So I wrote a letter to Sir Donald Bradman. And I wrote a fairly strong letter saying my disappointment and asking why uh, and so forth. I had a reply from Sir Donald, a three-page handwritten letter explaining that uh, the International Cricket Council had asked every cricketing nation not to pick anyone in their cricket squad for test matches. Don't pick anybody who had a doubtful action. And because my action was classed as doubtful, I never got, a, never got selected. Would you believe, Graham? I can't find that letter. I remember the letter well. It was all handwritten and Sadonald's signature on the bottom of the letter. And what did you think of Bradman's letter? Did you agree with the contents of it? Well, as far as I was concerned, I was just bowling like everybody else. But anyway, uh, I was classed as doubtful. I didn't get a game. But when I uh, played in Adelaide the next season, this is after the Ashes tour, Sir Donald Bradman was at the airport and I don't know whether he was there to meet me or not but he did meet me and he came and introduced himself and invited me to his home for dinner. We went to dinner at Sir Donald and Lady Bradman's home. His wife and daughter were there. Graham McKenzie came with me from West Australia. Peter Loder, I think, might have been there. But what was interesting, Graham, is that uh, later in the evening... He got his video out, slides, I'm told, by my daughter. He showed slides of a lot of people, and you'd be surprised, uh, Graham, the people that had doubtful actions. It was absolutely incredible. And I'm talking about the likes of Lindwall, Sonny Ramadan, Alfred Valentine, Jim Burke. But he had all these well-renowned bowlers. He'd caught them all on, on video. And what did you think of that gesture from Sir Donald Bradman? Oh, it was brilliant. I mean, to be the first West Australian to ever play in an Ashes test, culminating in having lunch at Sir Donald Bradman's home in Kensington. I mean, un- 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 unbelievable. A superb gesture on his part. And how did your cricket progress after this meeting with Bradman? Did you try and change your action at all? Well, I, yeah, I did. I started to uh, think, well, I've got to do something about this because it's become a real thing now that uh, I had a doubtful action and my place in the West Australian side was in jeopardy and 
I was playing in Brisbane and Barry Shepard, our captain, and a few other guys had been selected for a test match. Uh, I was playing in at the Gabba Ground in Brisbane. Our opening batsman got a knock on his thumb, had his thumb broken, and he couldn't play, her name Gordon Becker. Graham McKenzie was our captain, and he said, would you open the batting for me? So uh, I was pretty determined at that stage, so I said, yeah, I'll open the batting. And I made 154. Was this an easy transition? Well, it came pretty easy, actually. I was retained in the position of opening batsman and won the aggregate of runs made for West Australia. And I made scores like 88 and 70, not out, and 70. And so I played another two seasons as a batsman. And during this time, were you still bowling pace and spin? Uh, less and less. All of a sudden, I'd gone out of favour a bit. Uh, I still had an odd bowler when uh, we were struggling, but generally uh, was in the side the last two years for my batting. It was very satisfying, actually, because I'd put a fair bit into my batting over the years without doing much, really. What do you think, looking back, about your bowling action being questioned, along with all those other players that you mentioned? What do you think about the measures that were taken? Well, I thought the decision by the Australian Cricket, by the sorry, the World Cricket Council, I, I thought it was intelligent, an intelligent thing to do. But they had a, a problem, it was looking like getting out of hand, and, and they solved the problem by asking the home nations not to pick anybody with a deophylaxin. To me, uh, Graham, that made a bit of sense. And looking back on that one test match, what did playing in the Ashes mean to you? You know, in a way, it's a great deal of disappointment not being able to play another game. See, I was the first West Australian to play in an Ashes test. It's a hell of a fool. I didn't ever feel that I was a test cricketer, but opportunity is a great thing. I was given the opportunity, and I had two for four. I could have had three for four. I just wasn't able to get another game. The selection for Australia has to be a highlight, because when you're playing in an Ashes series it's uh, something a bit special however that's not quite the end of the story something else came out that one test match didn't it during the test match in sydney that i played out of left field i got a cablegram from the haywood cricket club in central lancashire league and it said interested in your services as our professional for next season please advise your situation so i took the letter to my captain richie benno who then called on Ray Linwall and Wally Grout, and they were laughing, saying, well, we'll get this together. So they said, you'll need a thousand pounds and airfares and accommodation. And so I sent back the cable, Graham gave them the details. Later, that same day, a cable arrived, terms acceptable, contract in the mail. So, so, so I missed the footy season and went and played Lancashire League for Hayward. How was that? Did you enjoy playing over here? Oh, yes. Did you ever know Seth Pepper? Seth Pepper was the big daddy of them all. Uh, I knew, got to know Frank Worrell very well. I got to know Sonny Ramon very well. And and so the Garfields overs became one of my close mates. And it was just, uh, it was a whole new ball game. A whole new ball game. And you brought forward your wedding, didn't you, to the march? Yeah, the honeymoon was the uh, Hayward Cricket Club trip. 
and that uh, there was no aeroplanes running around in those days, so we went. We were three weeks on a, on the ocean liner up through the Suez Canal, and so you played in the ashes, got married, and then took your honeymoon on the ship to England. That must have been the time of your life. Yes, it was. What were the highlights of that season playing in England? Yeah, I, I, in the Central Lancashire League, would you believe? I played against Sobers. And we had uh, 11,000 people at this Lancashire League game. Now, that's a very big crowd. He bowled like the wind. He hit six of our batsmen in the head. And he bowled us out for 69. And this crowd of 11,000 people were very keen. And they were very happy about the fact that they were mostly now going to watch Sobers bat all afternoon. And I almost got booed because I got him leg before wicket for 11. Did you? Oh, brilliant. And the crowd was most disappointed. He put on a bit of an act as he was given out and threw his head in the air and did all these silly things, but he was fun. But, uh, so I picked up getting sobers three times. <laughs> I think that showed what a great bowler you were. So that was just for one season, was it? Yes. Now, what happened after that, of course, is um, the football club were very keen and they'd appointed a new high-profile coach. Anyway, uh, I decided not to go back to England and accept this football offer. We won three premierships in a row, and I, I won the first and best award in the, in, the grand, in the grand final. So it sounds like you made the right decision to return to Australia, but I guess you'd always treasure that season you had with Hayward. The people you meet, it's quite incredible. Then they stayed friends, you know, we stayed friends for, for every a day. Absolutely, and that's what cricket is all about, isn't it? Well, that sounds like the perfect place to end. So, Keith, thanks so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's been nice to talk to you, and I'm glad I got through it. And uh, OK, cheers. Keith Slater there, speaking from his home in Midland, Western Australia. A huge thank you to Keith for those great memories and to his family for setting up the interview particularly his daughter Kay. And what a great story it was, starting out as a spinner before incorporating quick bowling into his armoury, his Linwalls, as Keith puts it, the first Western Australian to play in an Ashes test, and how many players can say that their first morning of Ashes work included the prize wickets of Peter May and Ted Dexter. It certainly made the Sydney members sit up and take note. And then when the spotlight was shone on his bowling action, he reinvented himself as an opening batsman. Incredibly impressive, and then when you consider his exploits on the Aussie Rules football field, it really was a stellar sporting career. The good people of Hayward, Lancashire, were lucky to have him, even if it was for just one season. Let's hope Keith can find that letter from Bradman. He'll be the first to know if he does. If you want to get in touch with the show, the email address is cricket at onceuponatimeintheashes.com or you can tweet us at onceashes. It would be great to hear from you about anything related to Ashes cricket and in particular the one Ashes test wonders we are featuring over the coming weeks. Next up on Once Upon a Time in the Ashes we'll feature our first English player on our one Ashes test list, Ken Taylor. Like Keith, Ken also enjoyed a dual sporting career playing football for Huddersfield Town and cricket for Yorkshire and England. His tale is well worth half an hour or so of your time. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs>